America. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, one of these days, you and I are going to have a uh, not a three-point shooting contest, but a free-throw <laughs> shooting contest, all right? Because let me just say this. I can shoot the rock. I can shoot. I can shoot the rock. In case you're not aware, I know. I know you're a basketball fan. I. I, I don't know your level of skill, but you are saying you want to challenge the ninth best free throw shooter of all time. I just want to put that out there. I just want to know. I want you to know what you're getting into here, Brian. Hey, this is JJ Redick, 15 year NBA vet, former Duke player host of the Old Man of the Three podcast. I go on TV sometimes to talk about basketball, and I'm here to tear the show up. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Off the Beat, another sports edition today with me, your host, Brian Baumgartner. Today's guest, as you just heard, is none other than professional baller, sportscaster, and podcaster extraordinaire, J.J. Reddick. Now, JJ started his unbelievable career at Duke, where to this day, he is the all-time leading scorer. And when he graduated, he went on to play in the NBA for the Orlando Magic, the LA Clippers, the 76ers, among others, for an insane 15 seasons. He's a true ACC legend. And during his career, he even broke the record for most points in the conference. Now, funny enough, JJ and I have something else in common. I'm not talking about just our basketball skills. Uh, during JJ's playing years, 
in the NBA. To this day, he has hosted his own podcast called The Old Man and the Three, all about the NBA. He's also an analyst for ESPN. And so today, well, I'm going to help the sports analyst analyze himself. Might as well get started, everybody. Here he is, the very funny and always insightful J.J. Reddick. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning. Left over from the night before. JJ, how are you? I'm great. I, I had a it was a rainy day here in Sag Harbor, but I had a, a great golf lesson this morning. You did and then beat some balls for about 45 minutes afterwards. So now I just worked with uh, with one of your people here on a project in Los Angeles. Yes, and I understand you were taking up golfing. This has become a new a new fairly new passion for you, right? Yeah, I mean I had golfed i had played i had played rounds of golf prior to last summer but i i got into it shortly after my last season ended i started taking lessons and i knew that it was going to be the thing in retirement like i i got bit and i'm an obsessive person i i like to deep dive on everything and i i mean we could talk about golf for an hour and a half here if you want <laughs> but but it is you have to understand, I, I spent so much time in gymnasiums and hotel rooms and planes and buses for the last 20 years of my life. And so for me to be able to go walk for four and a half hours outside, uh, it's it's a spiritual experience. I, I just, there's nothing, I mean, other than, you know, bad shots, but there's nothing I, I don't enjoy about, about the game. It's It's just incredible. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that. I haven't specifically ever heard someone say that in the same way that I, I do. I started very similarly. I was doing theater at the time, right? So in dark rooms with no <laughs> windows, you know, either rehearsing or performing at night. And yeah, for me, it was a, a reason, to, an ability to get outside and just smell the grass and be outside and walk and and try to compete with myself in a new way. And uh, that's how I fell in love with it too. So that's interesting. I, you you don't really think about, you know, you as a as a college and professional athlete not getting to be outside. But I guess basketball is kind of the, the same way. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And it, and even in the off season, I I just was so regimented and so diligent about my work that most of my day, you know, I was I was I was a Monday to Friday, Saturday off, Sunday back in the gym. I didn't like to take more than a day off at a time. So, even in the off season, so much of my day was spent inside. And I would mix it up in the in, in the summers. I'd go find a turf field and do conditioning or I'd go to a high school track, but you know, by and large, I'm working inside a gymnasium, I'm working inside a weight room, hours and hours and hours of doing that. And so when I got done with that, I didn't have I didn't have four hours to go play a round of golf. I, I right. wanted to spend that time with my wife and my kids. And it, it just, all of a sudden, this new world opened up for me where I had I had time to actually, and by the way, th th this, this summer, I've actually gone to the driving range, which is a new thing as well, because 
last summer getting into the game, it was more just, I want to play as much as possible. And I, I, I got some incredible invites that I got to play some great courses, but it was more about just playing. And now it's like, it's back to the mentality I had as a player where you're trying to master a craft. And so okay. I really, really enjoy just days like today where you don't play around and you go, you take a lesson and then you go work on a specific thing for 45 minutes or an hour. That's interesting. I just like to play. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I just like to play. I'll figure it out out there. But I, yeah, I, I, I love it. Now, are you still, you're, you're retired now. I mean, we're starting at the end and we're going to go back in a second, but are you still working out? Are you still going to the gym? Are you still shooting <laughs> 342 uh, shots uh, on Sundays? Or are you you're rele- you're relaxing that a little bit? I made it a point to give myself a break over the last year, and it's been liberating to not feel obligated, like I have something hanging over my head every day that I've got to be in the gym. So I've I've not gained any weight. But I've lost a lot of muscle tone, if you know what I mean. Okay. I actually, right, my fair. wife, my wife, I, I've I've done Pilates. Pilates is the one thing that I've been consistent about um, because I started doing that when I was in college, and I, I maintained that throughout my career. But I went and did a uh, a reformer class with my wife, and I generally do classical Pilates, but this was like a very ab intensive, lunge intensive reformer class on Saturday morning with my wife and my two sisters. And I'm still very sore from that because I have not <laughs> activated those muscles in quite some time. <laughs> well, good for you. Just you and the ladies working out now. No, there's no more yeah. testosterone. It's just you and the ladies doing reformer Pilates. We should mention, I just want to mention, I want to get this out of the way at the top. So the, the colleague of mine that you, uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago, that, that was Jason Gallagher who worked with you on, I believe, a commercial you had just shot in Santa Monica. And you know, we Jason, call it we uh, call we call them we call them branded shoots. We don't call them commercials. We call them branded I, shoots. It sounds I'm sorry. Way, I'm sorry, Brandon. Yeah, I'm no, sorry, that's bro. fine. Thank sorry. You. No, it's fine. So my colleague was doing a branded shoot with you <laughs> a couple weeks ago, Jason Gallagher, who is our head of production at our uh, at our company. And I don't know if he conveyed this to you, but he is I'm sure you get this all the time. He is the biggest office fan in the world. And it was it was such a thrill for him. I was just with him in Vegas last week. We were shooting some stuff while I was at Summer League. And it was just such a thrill for him to work with you. So uh, hope, hopefully he, he did all right. Hopefully well, thank right. you. No, he was great. It was, I could not have been easier. In fact, having a branded shoot end an hour early is something that is very rare. And that happened. So yeah, I was very, I was very happy with it. He was a great guy. It was great. Guy. And I think, I think the spot's going to be great, but I'm not going to talk about right now what it was for. All right, JJ, let's go back. You were born in the great state of Tennessee, moved shortly thereafter to Virginia. So you grew up in Virginia. You were a big baseball fan. I understand, and a baseball player. In fact, you, you baseball was your first love. Is that right? It was, and and some of that has to do with the fact that I have older twin sisters, and I basically did whatever they did. Okay, and so one of them, Katie, was was with me this past weekend in Sag Harbor, and we had this long conversation on Thursday night at dinner about just our childhood in general. And it's so funny because so my sisters rode horses. They they competed they you know in, in equestrian or whatever the sport is called, 
And so I learned how to ride a horse because they rode horses and they saved up, they'd work summer jobs. They were a little bit of entrepreneurs. They worked summer jobs from like eight years old on so they could save up and buy a horse. And we bought a horse and for all of us, all the kids, I'm one of five, we all were faced with a decision around the age of 12 or 13 where our parents came to us and they were like, choose something. You can't do everything. There's too many kids. So every kid can't play three sports. So choose something. And I didn't know this, but my I knew my dad came to me when I was uh, going into seventh grade and said, you got to choose between baseball and basketball. But he said that same thing to my sisters. You got to choose. You got to choose between softball, uh, which is why I started playing baseball. You got to choose between softball, basketball, or horse riding. And they chose basketball. Okay. Had they chose something else, my life path may have been very different. I'm going to be completely frank with you. I was I was decent at basketball, but I very much wanted to play because they played. I wanted to do everything they did, and and you know we would go play games of 21 out in the backyard, and they would beat the shit out of me. But I was always like, I got to get to the point where I can beat my sisters, and that you know for me that came at a pretty early age. But you know they <laughs> they, they were they were like my role models, and so some of the baseball stuff was just because they started playing softball. And I got into trading cards. That was my very first obsession. I talked about obsessions a few minutes ago, but that was my very first obsession was baseball trading cards. And that that's what really got me into the sport was them and and being able to collect. Right. How, how much older were they than you? I like to joke that they're five years older, but okay. they 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 really are four and a half years old. Okay. If we're being, if we're right. being technical. If yeah. we're being technical. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So they're so you're like kind of a whole high school behind them, right? So that you would look up to them and think that they were cool and that their friends were cool. And that makes sense. So they chose yeah. basketball. And so then you chose basketball and then baseball was, everything else was done. Dad made you choose. Yeah. I mean, and I, I did think they're cool. Their friends were cool. They came back for fall break their freshman year and I was in eighth grade and that was the first time I was ever served a beer and I, and their friends came over and we had a few, a few pops and I was, I was, I couldn't believe that I was having a beer with, you know, Lauren and Robin. I thought they were the coolest kids in the world, you know, their friends. So I, they, they, I just don't, the whole sense was, you know, I was just like, I, I idolized my sisters and, and I don't know if you know the background, but I don't have initials that equal JJ. It's Jonathan Clay. Right. So they said everything in the same time as kids. And so everything came out JJ. What's his name? JJ. Who's your brother? JJ. Hey, JJ. And that's really what stuck. My summer before my seventh grade, I I was a really good baseball player. I was a pitcher. And that was the first year my, my local AAU team had qualified for the national AAU tournament. So we flew out to Salt Lake City for two weeks. We competed out there. I flew back on Sunday. And I, I don't, I don't know how knowing me, I don't know how I forgot this, but my baseball team, my little league all-star team was in the middle of the state tournament. And so I flew back Sunday and my dad's like, uh, your coach's daughter is going to drive you out across the state four and a half hours to Portsmouth to play. And I was like, Oh, okay, whatever. Uh, so we drove through the night. I get there at 3am in the morning. And, um, luckily we had a rain out the next day. I pitched Tuesday morning. I had 13 strikeouts. We went ex extra innings. I had to, I had to pitch the extra two extra innings. We won the game and I got back from that tournament and I was just exhausted. And my dad was, gave me, it wasn't an ultimatum. It was just like, Hey, here's the situation with our family. And I don't think it's fair 
to your teammates in basketball or your teammates in baseball. You're good at both, but I don't think it's fair for you to just basically be distracted and not be all in on one or the other. So please choose. And to be honest, it was a fairly easy decision. And I did yet to hit my growth spurt. I was about five, six at the time. But I often think, you know, me now at 38 years old, what it would have lo- had looked like had I stuck with baseball. Would I have crapped out in single A? Right. Would I have made the big leagues? Would I be working on my third Tommy John surgery? I don't right. know. I don't right. know. <laughs> right. Your right. life path, your life's path could go in so many different directions based on one decision that you make as a as a 12 or 13 year old. Yeah, that is so fascinating. It's like that movie. I've talked about it a couple of times. And I, I think I need to go back and watch this movie because I keep referring to it. You ever see the movie Sliding Doors? I, I mean, I've seen it, but yeah, it's been me too. a long time. But that yeah. that the idea of, it, it refers to, my recollection is, is like the sliding doors of a subway and what might happen to your life if you, if you made it through before the doors close or if you're still stuck right there and that those little decisions, how they impact you. Now, I think for most people, <laughs> those decisions in terms of their life and career might not be quite as catastrophic. <laughs> so you you go all in in basketball. Now I'm going to tell you a story. I was um I mean, one of these days you and I are going to have a uh, not a three-point shooting contest, but a free throw <laughs> shooting contest, all right? Cuz let me just say this, I can shoot the rock. I can shoot I can shoot the rock in case you're not aware. I know I know you're a basketball fan. I, I I don't know your level of skill, but you are saying you want to challenge the ninth best free throw shooter of all time. I just want to put that out there. I just want to know I want you to know what you're getting into here, Brian. One one take, thirteen in a row, free throw line extended, wearing work shoes and a sport coat on okay. national television. That's even more impressive. Now, let me just say, <laughs> I I don't think you can do it. I don't think you can do it. One take, 13 in a row. We're going to try. One of these days, we're going to try. That's my challenge to you. So back in, in my younger days, when I was focused on basketball, and I read a story about the hoop that you had in your yard, and it's not the ground's not always even, and there's trees in the way. And I remember for myself, one summer between – years of playing basketball, I dedicated myself to it. And I remember those nights being out, getting called in for dinner, and it's basically dark outside. And I'm still trying to hit shots. I'm still trying to work on stuff. I can only imagine for you the time and effort and dedication it put in. Was that fairly instantaneous once you make the choice that it's basketball that you give yourself fully to basketball it was but it also had more to do with love it wasn't just about something i was good at and i i think we all have talents and and some talents we don't nurture and maybe some of the reason we don't nurture them is because we don't love it as much and basketball and and baseball even because we had a little shed in the backyard and I painted a square at the bottom of the shed where the concrete was and the hill adjacent to the shed naturally rose like a mound so I could go out there by myself and try to throw strikes right I could go out and shoot a basketball by myself I, I I've always en- enjoyed autonomy I've always been self-motivated to do things and so basketball in the backyard was very much like a singular 
personal pursuit and it and it, because of the love the dopamine hit you get from watching you know this watch you watch the ball swish through the net and you get a little dopamine hit now you do that five times in a row 10 times in a row 15 times in a row all of a sudden you, you just you you love it and and so for me it was about the love and it's funny you bring up shooting in the dark and i would go i would shoot all day in the backyard and i was homeschooled so a lot of times I would get done with my work at 11 or 11.30 in the morning and I'd just go outside for hours and shoot. But it, it didn't matter if there was a snowstorm, an ice storm, the, 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 literal, the net could literally be frozen where I'd have to knock the ball out after every make and I would go put on mitts, and I, the, the mitts that where I could still feel the ball and I'd go shoot. And I'd go out after dinner. We didn't have like floodlights on the court, so I would go after dinner. I would take my dad's lawnmower and I'd put it at the top of the key, and then he had this lamp with a with a clamp on it, and I'd yeah. clamp the lamp to the top of the lawnmower, and I'd shine it on the court. And we had an English Springer Spaniel, uh, Maggie, and she would sit out there with me till 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, and if my ball went in the trees after a make or a miss, you know, she'd help me go find it. So yeah, it was it was more about the love. It wasn't like I knew right away I was going to be great. It was just I, I loved playing, and the other part part that I loved about it. And I'm, I'm curious about your own experience as an actor and working on set and working with different casts. What I loved about it was the camaraderie. It wasn't, so I got the autonomy of work by myself, but when it came time to performance, it was very much a collaborative effort. And the joy that I got, even as a 10 year old, and I certainly got that a lot as a 36 year old when I retired, that that experience of going through something with friends and people that have the same goal as you that's what i really and really really came to love about it and honestly it's what i miss the most about it yeah no i i, I very that's very similar to me and my experience i mean i think what what you may not know about me was i had decided early on just like you I was going to be a professional baseball player. That was that was my and very specifically I was going to be the first baseman for the Atlanta Braves. Um that was my that was my my singular goal and uh, it's so funny you talking about painting the uh the strike zone. I wasn't really a pitcher but I would I I would pitch occasionally and I did the same thing as you marked it off, did the thing again, but mine was against the garage and I don't know how old it was but apparently you know you get stronger as you get older and and one one pitch that went into dented like put a hole in the garage that that was done for me i did, i never was able to do that again i couldn't find another spot but yeah that that team i mean that's why i think team sports specifically is so important as a kid to have that experience that collective experience about working together to try to achieve some goal. And I think that, you know, that for sure, as I began doing theater was a part of it. it, loved the ensemble nature of it, that collective experience, the idea of going out and performing in front of other people, but, but really having each other's back. And I think, you know, I've said many times for me, the reason that the office became so successful was the nature of how the show was shot which is very similar to what you're talking about, about being on the basketball court. I mean, it was all of us 
in one room by and large for hours and hours and hours together and learning, quite frankly, just like, you know, you know where a certain player likes the ball on the blocks or on the post, you know, you throw it to his left hand or his right hand and how he's moving, you know, that in terms of all the comedy styles and all of the specific skills for the people who are on the office, for example, just knowing I could say something or give a look that was going to elicit a certain response that was going to be successful from somebody else. I think it, I think they're very, there is very much a correlation between those, those two things, idea of teammates or yeah, the the best the best teams I was on, you could say things without verbalizing them. That's right. Whether whether that was body language, a nod, a wink, you know, and and that that when you have that level of connection in an arena, that's really special. You know, I I used to when you have those moments, I used to get chills. I'd be on the court and I'd get chills when we would execute something at that high of a level. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... 
We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a random question. I, I don't want to date you. Were you were you a Sid Bream fan? Were you were you, were you, were you big? <laughs> I I well, I remember. I certainly remember the the moment where yes. Sid yes, where Sid slid across home base, traveling at about eight <laughs> miles an hour. I think rounding third in the playoffs there against the Pirates. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yes, I remember for sure. That was a that was a big that was a big sports moment in my childhood. Uh, I think that was the that was the second year they made the World Series. Ninety two. Right? That was that yeah. was ninety two. Yeah, that was ninety two. Ninety two was like all of my first sports memories. So I don't remember Jordan versus the Lakers, but I remember Jordan versus the Blazers. Right. I don't remember Duke beating UNLV in the Final Four and then beating Kansas, but I do remember them beating Kentucky in ninety two. Right. So and and I remember that night actually when Sid Bream slid into home plate to beat the pirates on Francisco Cabrera's single I was told to go to bed yeah and we we, we lived in a in a in a small house again it was seven of us I, I think the house was about 1800 square feet and you could hear anything that was going on and, and there was one room that had the 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 living room the dining room the kitchen and a wood stove because we didn't have central air so everything came you know all our heat came from the wood stove so Everybody would congregate in that room, and they were watching the game that night. And I kept creeping over the balcony to look down and listen in because I knew it was a close game. And finally, in like the eighth inning, my mom and dad said, "Fuck, just come downstairs and finish watching the game. You're already up late." So I got to watch that live, and, and just that's that's one of my earliest sports memories. That you you mentioned first baseman for the yes. Atlanta Braves. That's why I bring that up. Yes. <laughs> Well, my dad, long before you, my dad is a graduate of Duke University, and I understand you're one of your first favorite, you just mentioned it, Leitner hitting the shot against Kentucky in the Elite Eight game to move them to the Final Four. A big moment for you, a big moment for me as well. I had it on tape on a V. 
VCR tape for many, many years and would go back and watch the last seven minutes of that game is just about as good as you can possibly get of any basketball game ever. I'm told you knew very early on that you wanted to go to Duke. And in fact, when you were 16 years old, before your junior season of high school, is this correct? You committed to go to Duke to play basketball. That's correct. Yeah. At the time, I was the earliest commitment in Duke uh, basketball history. I I turned to my family when Leitner hit that shot and said, I'm going to play at Duke someday. They all thought I was out of my mind, probably. <laughs> and I would get, you know, starting in towards the end of eighth grade and, and, you know, definitely by the fall of my freshman year in high school, I was getting recruited. I would get letters in the mail. My first scholarship offer was from Wake Forest University, my freshman year of high school. But it was always about Duke. And, you know, the, by my sophomore and junior year, the FedEx guy and the UPS guy would come up, you know, our, our dirt road, come to the top, and I would be waiting for him after school. And he'd drop off 30 letters or 40 letters, whatever it was. And I would just immediately sift through them as fast as I could, looking for that Duke logo. And Coach K has a very specific and recognizable form of handwriting. So I knew also the handwritten ones versus the stock ones. Right. And I would try to get to those handwritten run ones as soon as possible. And I, I let all the schools know. I, I you know, I I was a hometown kid. I I had a sense of loyalty. I grew up in Roanoke, but I also lived in Charlottesville from ages three to seven. So I, I had a sense of loyalty to UVA. And I my high school coach was obsessed with Billy Donovan. We ran a lot of the stuff that Florida ran at the time that that my my coach Billy Hicks had gotten from Marshall when when Billy Donovan was there, and so I, I I was very interested in Florida. I wanted to go to UVA, but it was always about Duke. It was like if Duke offered me, how how can I turn this down? I could never turn this down. So I told all the schools in the fall before my junior year started. I said I'm going to take some unofficial visits. You should treat them as official visits. I'm going to make my decision before my junior season starts. I went to UVA. It was a great visit. I go to Duke the next week. Coach K gets me in the room. It's a it's a room adjacent to the locker room where he basically closes the door, no parents, no other coaches, and he lays it out for you. And he said, you can commit. We're ready for you to commit. You have a, a scholarship. And uh, I went home. I thought about it for a couple of days. I was supposed to go to Florida the following weekend with my sisters, my older sisters, and not my parents, and it was going to be a good time. <laughs> and and uh, it got to like Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and I just, I said to my mom and dad, I was like, "Why? I don't want to waste anybody's time. I don't want to waste Billy Donovan's time. I don't want to waste their assistant coach's time. I know where I, I know where I want to go. And it's funny thinking back, because we, we talked about that decision that I made at 12 or 13 to give up baseball and focus on basketball, but even more so the decision to go to Duke. For me at the time, it was very much about wanting to play for Coach K and wanting to be a Duke basketball player. And now, that was in 2000, so 22 years later, I had no idea of the life benefit that I would get from making that decision. Other than marrying my wife, going to Duke University was the best decision that I've ever made, bar none. And I made that decision at 16 years old. It's That's fascinating crazy. to think about that. Ha when uh, talk to me a little bit, you know, I, I said my dad went to Duke. I grew up in Atlanta, and 
our next door neighbors, actually the ones, the, the basketball hoop, quite frankly, was theirs that I'm sure I annoyed the hell out of them <laughs> dribbling it late at night. He was, he had season tickets to Georgia Tech, but every year we, we would get the Duke tickets when they came into town. We saw Duke play quite a bit. I went to one of their final fours. That was before you uh, with my dad as well. The first time you meet Coach K, was that in the room? Was that there when you did your visit or had you met him prior to that? So he he had come to my high school that September. And yeah. I want to say my UVA visit was around September 23rd, give or take. My Duke visit was around September 30th, give or take. And I committed on October 5th. So prior to me going to Duke, he had driven up from Durham. It's about it's about a two and a half hour drive with Chris Collins, who I was his first recruit. He had played at Duke, but was yep. at Seton Hall. Had coached the WNBA and and gotten the job that summer. And they came up, and my coach used to do this thing on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Billy Hicks used to do this thing on Tuesdays and Thursdays where we would have open gym, but we would start with 16 stations. And the stations would be like wall sits or defensive slides with a 45-pound plate on you or you know, 30 seconds of as many rim grabs as you can do. So I did that whole workout, and then we played open gym, and then coach watched me work out individually right after. And there was such a buzz in the school because it got out that day. So I'm sitting, you know, I'm in whatever class I'm in at the time. I don't know. I think I took physics senior year. So I'm probably in chemistry junior year. Yeah, chemistry junior year. I'm in chemistry class and everybody's talking about Coach K coming to visit that day. It was a big deal, you know, for our high school to have Coach K there. And we we chatted briefly at the time. I don't know what the rules are now, but at the time you could basically say hello and that's it. Okay. And, you know, they were very strict back then about contact with recruits prior to their senior year. So I didn't get a lot of time with them that day. But if I was on campus, I could spend time with them. So really, it was that room because Battier and Dunleavy had taken me to the football game that Saturday when I went to visit. And then it was after the game that I went and got in the room. And that was really my first sit down with him. And what was so striking about that and what is held up now for 22 years is just how brutally honest coach K is. He's okay. just, he's just, he's a truth teller and you need truth tellers in your life. And he's always been that to me. He's somebody that, you know, outside of my father, um, he's someone that I've leaned on uh, as much as anyone, uh, whenever I'm making life decisions, you know, when I retired, there were really two people outside of, of course I called my agent and, and I, you know, I, I told my best friend and I told, my wife and I told my kids, but you know, outside of those people, I call, I made two phone calls. I told coach K, uh, and I told Chris Paul, those are the only two people I, I told before I announced, um, that's just the level of relationship that I've had with him for over two decades now. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I mean, his legacy, I, I, I don't, I don't need to go through it. Is How shitty is it though, Brian? How shitty is it? That I can't UNC fans I can't will forever be able to hold this over us. I can't I because can't. they they win his last game in Cameron and then they they win his last game period. It's yeah. just it's disgusting. Is what it is. Makes me want to puke. It's disgusting. <laughs> Before you go to Duke, I just heard the story. You're playing for the state championship and you're hurt. And your doctors say, you're about to go to Duke, simmer down, young 
young buck. <laughs> you need to sit out, you know, this game, and you don't want to. You go to a doctor at Duke. Is this right? Who gives you the go ahead? Yeah, to be able to play. It's it's partially right. So there there's actually two injuries. So about uh, about uh, I don't know. 10, 15 games into my senior year, we had played in a bunch of national tournaments where we're playing nationally ranked high schools. We were a small public school in Virginia. So we, we get off to a slow start. We, you know, we're losing against Christ the King from Queens and Oxon Hill from Maryland and Mercer Island from Seattle. We're losing against these teams, Cal Poly from Long Beach. And we start winning some district games once we get back home after January. And it's a tie game. We're playing Halifax County. We're at Halifax. And I grabbed the ball on a, on a, my, my bottom of my feet have been killing me for weeks. I grabbed the, a loose ball in the corner and I turned to run up court and I feel this pop in my foot. And there, initially I thought somebody had thrown a battery and it hit me in the back of the foot. So coach calls timeout, draws up a play and I'm in the huddle and I'm realizing what just happened. I'm like, oh shit, like something just popped in my foot. My senior year's over. I'm devastated. I wanted to win a, a state championship. And we had had a shot the year before and and come up short. So I'm like basically crying in this huddle. Everybody's looking at me like, what, is, what are you doing? <laughs> Randomly, I go out and I, I hit a game-winning three with like three seconds to go and get back on the bus. I tell coach what's going on. So I go see a doctor in Roanoke and he's like, look, you should boot it up. Uh, it's six to eight week recovery. You've got a full tear of the plantar fascia. It was right at the the literally middle of my bottom of my foot. It's full tear. And I'm like, uh, all right. So I think my senior season's over. The Duke coaches advised me to go see Dr. Mormon at Duke. So I go down there. He tells me, let's be aggressive with this thing. Let's boot it for two weeks, get on some anti-inflammatories. When you're not in the boot, you should be doing manual therapy, rolfing, which I didn't know that was a thing. And, and I discovered what rolfing was. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. It's the most <laughs> painful thing in the world, especially if you have a tear of, of, of fascial injury. So I do that for three weeks, literally three weeks to the night. I play my senior night. I hit nine threes, 38 points. Coach K's in the house. I have a dunk, um, which I wasn't known for dunking, but it was a, it was a good night. And we roll through the playoffs. Uh, I mean, we're, we're now like battle tested. The team had to play games without me. We had played all these nationally ranked teams. And I really feel like, oh, we got a chance. So we get to we get to the state semifinals, and we're playing Hayfield, which is from Northern Virginia. They're number two team in the state, and I'm killing. We're up twenty at the end of the game, and I get a breakaway. I go to I go to dunk it. This is off my left foot. My right foot had been injuring. I go to dunk it. And my foot just gives out, and I feel this tear again in my left foot. And this is at the insertion point. So this is on the side of the foot where the plantar fascia inserts to your ankle bone, but that's torn. So I'm limping around after the game. I'm limping around the next day. I don't tell any of my teammates. The only person who knew was Coach Hicks. I didn't want to put any doubt in my teammates' uh, minds. Like, it's okay. We got it this far. JJ's hurt. We're not going to, you know, whatever. So I'm just like, I'm not going to tell anybody. So I go to our trainer for the next 24 hours, and I'm like, let's work on some tape jobs. So he figures out a way to have this tape job that fully takes all the pressure off my plantar fascia on that side of my foot. So I'm essentially pain-free when that tape job is on. So he tapes it up before the game, and I go out, and I, you know, I had the state record at the time. I had 43 points in the state championship. We win the state championship. And I was naive to think that storybook endings happen in life. 
But storybook endings apparently do happen in life because this <laughs> this was about of an incredible experience. I mean, I had watched Hoosiers 50 times as a kid. Right. And to have that moment at 17 years old was just, it was incredible, Brian. It was incredible. That's so awesome. Yeah, as you mentioned, 43 points, state championship, goes out on top. Now, was, was this just random? Have you had issues since then? So I think part <laughs> part of the issue was I was a, a, a sneakerhead at the time before there were sneakerheads. I see. So I was changing shoes. I wore yeah. the team shoes in the game, but I was changing shoes every day in practice. I would wear Reeboks. I would wear Adidas. I would wear Nikes. Sometimes I'd get a hold of a pair of shoes that were a size 12, and I thought they looked cool, so I'd wear them in practice. So I think it was more about that. And I learned that from that year. And then when I was in college and a pro, I would find one shoe that didn't hurt my feet for that year. And I'd order <laughs> right. as many pairs of shoes as possible. And I just, I'd wear those forever. So I, it was more, it wasn't random. It was more about, I think I was just switching shoes too much. And okay. so the, ins, the, the, the insoles and all that stuff, it just, it didn't work for me. It didn't work for my physiology or anatomy or whatever. Yeah. You go to Duke, you described a little while ago it being the other than your wife, the best decision <laughs> that you you ever made. Your freshman year in the 2003 ACC tournament championship game, you you explode. You you explode. I mean, the signature moment I would say of of definitely your first season. You scored 20 plus points in the last 10 minutes of the game. You hit a bunch of threes. You end up crushing NC State and winning the ACC tournament. Do you feel like that game is what is what really cemented you as as well as a Duke mainstay? Well, I that game was a game that you could dream about in the backyard because I had played that tournament in the backyard. I had played the ACC tournament. I had done three rounds. I'd been out there for three and a half hours and I'd go through every shot. So I had lived and visualized that moment as a fantasy. To have it become a reality was really special. And I think it, be, it, it cemented my status in Duke because it, it was like a, a marker on my legacy. You know, to score 23 points, you're, you're down 15 with 10 minutes to go, and to score 23 points in the last 10 minutes of an ACC championship game against a rival, hey, it's, it, 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 it gave me a mark on the legacy. It, it, and I was, by the way, I was slumping. I mean, I had gotten off to a great start my freshman year and had gone through probably a four- to five-week stretch before that game where I'd, I'd struggled and hadn't played particularly well going up to that 10 minute mark and then I just I got a couple open looks back to back possessions to cut it to nine I hit back to back threes and then it was like the the flood the floodgates opened and it was I was hitting ridiculous shots and running around the court probably holding my follow through probably talking shit to the NC State fans probably head bobbing you know whatever whatever antics 18 year olds do right that's that's what I was doing Bean Dad, The Dress. 
30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
your sophomore year, you you become well either next in line or at the top of the list of of hated Duke players. I, I mean, I I was reading when I was reading about you. I think that my my sense is, is that Leitner would hold number one. I guess uh, it's been said you you held the number one position there as as being most hated Duke players. I mean, that's what sports fans, if you're not a Duke fan, you love to hate Duke. And everybody seems to find a player. Do you think that that ACC championship game is what cemented that for you? I didn't want to use the word hater before, but do you think that that it was a response to that and then your continued success your sophomore season you can you can label it however you want brian i've done enough therapy over the years that i i can i can talk about it openly i actually don't think it was that 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 acc no? tournament game against nc state no because you know my, i i i've said this before my my freshman year we played our first 10 or 11 games either at home or at, on neutral sites so we had played ucla in in indiana for the John Wooden Classic. We had played Ohio State in Greensboro for the Big Ten ACC Challenge. It wasn't until we go to Clemson for our first road game, and I walk out on the court, and I'm like, what is happening? I Did I do something wrong? Why is everybody getting on me? And then Is it this got still your wor- freshman year, you're This saying? is my freshman year. Oh, okay. And it got worse and worse and worse. And then my sophomore year... You know, partially it was probably the bad haircut. I didn't take particularly good care. I mean, I looked like a frat kid. I looked like a frat. I'll say it. I looked like a frat kid. I acted like a frat kid, and I was given. I was. I was giving people buckets, and and people didn't like that. And I played for Duke on top of that, which made it exponentially worse. My sophomore year was dark, man. It was dark. You know, I, I thought about quitting in December. I'll put it this way. You, you see Leitner hit that shot against Kentucky in 1992. I'm three three months before my eighth birthday. I'm seven years old. I commit to Duke at 16. I get on campus. And for two years, everyone hates me. People hated me after that too, let's be clear. But everyone <laughs> hates me. And I'm like, this is not what I signed up for. This is not <laughs> what I envisioned. This is not the joyful, competitive thing that I wanted for my whole childhood it it's it's a drag it's an energy drainer I'm not secure enough in my own ego at 18 and 19 years old to process what is happening so I starting in my sophomore year and and through the rest of my time in in college and I go off and on I've actually got a call with my therapist after this Brian uh I've 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 sought out someone to talk to and at the time at Duke for my sophomore year on, that was very intensive. You know, that summer after my sophomore year, I had hit a real low point. And I had told, I, I, I had gotten really bad grades. I didn't go to class. I'd gotten an incomplete in one of my classes, the history of New York, which by the way, I live in New York City. If I, if I had any sense of, like normalcy at the time i would have loved that class are you kidding me anyways got an incomplete in that class so i tell duke i'm like i'm going home to roanoke i'm not doing summer school i need a break i tell my parents i'm staying in durham and going to summer school to complete my incomplete the reality was i was hanging out on a buddy's couch for a couple weeks this is early may finally the 
team tracked me down and they brought me to Coach K's office and we had this seminal moment in my life where he said, you know, we're going to get you the help you need. You're clearly struggling and we're going to put you on a plan. We're going to surround you with people that will assist you. We're going to make, we're going to make you great. And Coach Collins specifically said something that has stuck with me forever. And that's, you know what really sucks? We'll never know how good you can be. We'll never see the best version of yourself. And that was two years into my Duke career. I played two more years and 15 years in the NBA. I can honestly say you saw the best version of me. I couldn't have been any better than I was. And if it wasn't for that conversation, it would never would have happened. And so they, I still have the sheet. There's a sheet. It's in my basement down here. There's a sheet I have with my schedule for that summer. Hour by hour, wake up time, check in time, therapy time, class schedule, weights, running, basketball workouts, dinner, every meal. I was I was required to carry a jug of water around at all time. I got very serious about my nutrition, about what I was doing, about my sleep and all that. So I end my sophomore year. I'm like two fifteen. I start my junior season at one ninety two and mm. like four percent body fat, and I'm winning every conditioning drill. And that was the ch- that was the change that made me who I am because that carried over into my pro career tenfold. I got more. Wow. I got more strict. I got more regiment. I got more detail oriented, and I just became obsessed with the process. You know, I, I was always obsessed with basketball. I, I got obsessed with the process of of trying to become great, of really putting everything into something. And if it wasn't for that summer and for that meeting. It would never would happen. And so that's also why I have such a strong sense of loyalty and friendship with coach is because in my darkest moment, and I had a dark moment my last year in the NBA too, uh, being away from my family, being essentially quarantined in an apartment in New Orleans by myself, uh, hurt and all that. But in my darkest moment, like he was there for me. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I can't imagine... As, you know, as a young person, 18, 19 years old, and the experience of being at the absolute top level of college sports, but you're still a kid, man. You're still a kid. And, you know, what you have to endure being in that spotlight, I it just, yeah. It felt, at the time, it felt like I was in a fishbowl. Looking back, Duke basketball in this grand scheme of things, professional sports in the grand scheme of things, like there's way more important things. Don't get me wrong. But at the time it was so important and it felt like I was being watched and viewed. And again, I go back to the ego structure. I I didn't have a healthy ego structure. I didn't know who I was. I wasn't comfortable with myself. I was trying to be someone I wasn't. And I had to, I had to work through that. It was tough. Yeah. When you're the guy catching the shit, right? When you're on the villain list, are you talking about that in the locker room? Is it a part or is everybody trying to ignore it? That's my, that's my question. Like, is it like, I don't know, the pitcher who's got a no hitter going and you're not supposed to talk about it. Like, are you talking about it? And is it is is there banter? I mean, obviously, it had a deep effect on you, which I'm not minimizing that at all. I just wonder if it's being acknowledged or if everyone's just trying to ignore it. 
at the time, my teammates and I didn't talk about it. Okay. And, I, and again, I, I that's not a that's not a knock on me not addressing it or them not addressing it. It was more so. Again, we're 18, 19 years old, twenty years old. Yeah, and we've got our own shit going on, and you know. Uh, maybe one guy's worried about his playing time. Maybe another guy's worried about his shots. Maybe another sure. guy's worried about going pro. Like they're not worried about me. It wasn't until later in my career where you get to the NBA and you kind of see everything and everything. If you're, if you're on a good team and you're in a good locker room, everything gets addressed. Now, coach K would bring it up. He would bring it up. He would bring it up in, in, in team meetings occasionally. And he would bring it up with me as well. Like we talked about it a ton. But within our team, it was like never discussed. And it's funny to think about it now. Had I lived through that in an NBA locker room? Oh, my God. The banter on that would be fucking hilarious. Right. It'd be so good. Right. right. It'd be so good. Because a guy like Blake Griffin, I mean, a guy like Blake Griffin, like he doesn't let anything go. He right. sees everything. You know, right. Joel Embiid sees everything. So those guys, <laughs> they, they, you'd have to deal with the game and the opposing crowd. And then you'd have to deal with Joel in the locker room afterwards, you know, because yeah. he's, he's going to give it to you too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you end up when you leave Duke after your four years, all time leading scorer in Duke history. And just, I didn't even realize this until I started looking at it. Just one year later, you get your Jersey hung up there in the rafters at Cameron Indoor Stadium. You've talked a lot about what Duke means to you in, in terms of, of your life, but tell me a little bit about the experience of, of going back there and seeing your jersey hanging up there next to Leitner and Hill and Ferry and Domensky and Hurley and Jason Williams, all the guys. Uh, tell me a little bit about going back there. You have to take it back to when I was seven and and what Duke basketball meant to me and meant to my life and meant to my family. And I remember the first meeting I ever had with Coach K on campus when I when I matriculated as a as an incoming freshman. I started summer school and he met with all the freshmen. We talked for an hour, but one of the questions he asked me in that meeting was, What do you hope to accomplish individually at Duke? And I, I said this in my speech when my when I got retired, but I'll say it again. I said to him, I, I want my jersey to hang in the rafters and I want to be the all-time leading scorer at Duke. Because in my mind, I was like, I'm I'm playing four years here. It wasn't, I, did, would, I had no aspirations at the time to leave earlier to play in the NBA. It was a pipe dream at the time. And for me to do those two things, that was individually. Of course, I wanted to win national championships and I didn't win one and that, that still irks me to this day. But... For me to do those two things and to see that jer that jersey in the rafters, it's special, man. And I I take my kids back now, and you know we we walk through Cameron, we see the jersey in the rafters, we go in the back hallways up to the practice facility or by the locker room or by Coach K's, and you see, you know, I'm not going to say it's a shrine, but you see a shrine for all the great players that played at Duke, and I'm one of them. It's it it. it it never ceases to amaze me. It's still a pinch me moment. Yeah. And it's it's a pinch me moment when I think about my, my relationship with Coach K. It's a pinch me moment to think about the experiences that I got to have on a basketball floor in Cameron Indoor Stadium. It's really it's really remarkable. Like I, you know, 
I hope that you feel the same way in some sense. I, I know you, you didn't end up being a first baseman for the Atlanta Braves, but I hope in some way you get the sense like, oh, I'm living out my dream. I never took that for granted. Yeah. 13 years into my pro career, 12 years in, 14, whatever. I never took it for granted. I always was like, holy shit, this fucking idiot from, from the holler in Tennessee you know they grew up with nothing like i'm doing this right now it's it it was always special to me and and those duke years and the the accomplishments that i got to achieve there they will always be special to me and my kids now get a sense of that they just got into basketball they're eight and six but they they really have gotten into basketball in the last year and they're starting to appreciate who their dad was as a player and it's so it's so cool to me. It's so cool. Were you there for Coach K's last game against North Unfortun- Carolina? Un- unfortunately, yes. <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. Did you go? Did you go? Did, I did not go. No, there there uh, there was an opportunity. I did not go. I was traveling at the time, but all of the guys. I mean, I was just blown away with how many of the guys showed back up for that for that game that was so cool we uh we we had a room in the back which is basically the players lounge and so they had set up some drinks and waters and and snacks before the game back there we were all supposed to meet back there before we went on the court together there was 96 of us and so we spent some time together back there and there's different generations. There's the early eighties, the pre Johnny Dawkins teams. Then there's, you know, the, the, the Johnny Dawkins final four team. There's that, those teams that had that stretch from 88 to 92, where they make five straight final fours. Then there's the late nineties guys, the two thousands guys, all the one and done guys. Everybody's kind of mingling with each other. And we go out on the court and we form a line for coach K and he comes out and gets introduced and we take a picture and Wojo and I had seats next to each other. Steve Wojciechowski and I had seats next to each other. And we're walking up to our seat, and he's like, man, how cool is this that we get to be a part of this, that we're somehow a part of this man's legacy? And I, again, I, I, I hate to use the same word again, but there's just such a deep appreciation I have. And so while we did lose that game, that – entire day that entire experience was so surreal um to be able to celebrate coach of course but all also all the teams and all the players that he has coached was just it was remarkable and we have like this i don't know if it's a recruiting tool but we you know we call it the brotherhood or whatever i could honestly say it goes back to what i was talking about with my decision to go to duke i could honestly say that 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 is real like I have a great relationship with so many different former players, whether that's Quinn Snyder or Billy King or Shane Batty or Mike Dunn. I didn't play with any of those guys. Right. We have this incredible shared experience that that immediately forms a bond. And then, of course, all the other stuff is just, it, it just added. Yeah. Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
You end up getting drafted 11th to the Orlando Magic there. Go to NBA Finals. I think this this stat is insane to me. That for 21 years in a row, from high school to college to the NBA, you make the playoffs. And oftentimes in the NBA, by the way, with teams that are not used to going to the playoffs, let's be honest. Um, that is just such an incredible accomplishment. Obviously, you go to the finals with Orlando, lose to my Lakers. I'm sorry about that still, though. I don't know why I'm apologizing. <laughs> your time in Orlando there early in your career before you leave and, and start tra- traveling around a little bit. Talk to me about the experience there of playing in Orlando. Yeah, I, I mean, at the time, Orlando felt like a very big city. Mm. I didn't have neighbors growing up. And so the first time I ever had a house next to the house that I lived in, I, I mean, college, you're in a dorm. That doesn't count. But a house next to the house I lived in was when I was a rookie in Orlando. It was the first time I lived in a neighborhood. Um, it was the first time there was like a real downtown with restaurants and uh, clubs. And I was on my own. And, you know, I had to navigate being a 21, 22 year old douchebag along with, uh, <laughs> along with like everybody. I, I talked about this with Grant Hill on my podcast recently. Like everybody on my team hated me cause I went to Duke and I got there and they, they gave me shit all the time. So it was like, it was a hard experience early on. I think a couple things happened. I think I grew up as a person that was probably most important. I met my wife during that time, we started dating in 2008, uh, right before my third year started, and we've been together, you know, ever since. And and then I, I just went into survival mode, and I always loved the game, I always loved competing, but at some point it became about survival and complete ownership of what I wanted to do, and so. I had to cross a barrier and I talk about this all the time. Like there are basketball players and there are basketball fans. There are basketball coaches and basketball front office people and people that work in the media that talk about basketball. And those people are fine. Like they, they do fine. Then there's, then there's sickos, basketball sickos, true junkies, true psychos. And I had to become that to survive. And I'm fucking glad I did. Uh, but, it, it, you know, I look back at my sophomore year, somewhere between, between my sophomore year and my junior year, that it was a very similar process between my second year and my third year in the NBA. And it didn't pan out right away. My third year, I still was in and out of the rotation at times. Uh, I didn't play every night. But it was it was like a full commitment. I thought I had made a commitment, and then it became... No, I'm going to take it to the next level. And, you know, a lot of that was changing my body. A lot of that was just all the extra work I did. And so those early years in Orlando were about survival. They were about gaining Stan Van Gundy's trust. If I look back at the later years in Orlando, I sometimes think, specifically after my fourth year, I signed a contract with the Chicago Bulls to be a starter. I would have played with Derrick Rose and Joe Kim Noah and Lou Aldang and that team that following year after I signed, I, Orlando matched my offer so because I, I was restricted, so I didn't get to go to Chicago. But that team won 61 games. It was the number one seed in the East. Like To me, I was ready to take that next step. 
And so those later years in Orlando, I was, you know, I was still coming off the bench. I'd, I'd spot start sometimes if guys got hurt, but it was kind of like two or three wasted years where I was ready to take the next jump in my career. And, and thankfully, you know, I got to a perfect place for me uh, after my seventh year and I, and I signed with the Clippers. I mean, I didn't become a full-time starter till my eighth year in the NBA. I really crazy. had to, I really had to work and it's crazy to think cause I, I was, I was 29 when I signed with the Clippers and I was hurt a lot of that year because I, I, I gotten pushed out of the air and I broke my wrist and I fell on my back. I had a back injury. I had to recover from the wrist injury. So I missed a lot of that year, but my best years in the NBA were on the other side of 30. And as a six four, what most people think is a very unathletic person, to have my best years in the NBA <laughs> on the other side of thirty, I think is is pretty is pretty amazing. And and again, that that's because I went into that mode of just like no one's going to outwork me, no one's going to be in better shape with me, no one's going to study the game more than me, no one's going to talk more than me, no one's going to you know team dynamics. Like if I have to figure out a relationship on a team, if I have to mend something between two people, I'm going to be that guy. And so I just, I just, everything became all consuming and I feel bad at times for my wife. And it's part of the reason I retired was because it, it, it just, it took up everything. You know, my entire day was about basketball and I, I've told this story before. I remember, I think it was my second year in LA, her family came in town, her parents, and it just so happened her aunts and uncles were visiting her cousin who lived in Newport Beach and we were in Manhattan Beach so we had a Sunday game nationally televised against the Rockets the next day and we would go to this Mexican restaurant and I don't think I spoke at the dinner and so we get home and Chelsea's like what the fuck man like why 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 are you acting like that at dinner and I'm like huh she's like why are we you didn't speak and I was like oh sorry I was just thinking about guarding James Harden tomorrow <laughs> Oh gosh! Oh, oh! I, I killed. That is awful. That is. I feel so bad for her, but I also totally get it. Yeah. You you talked about your relationship with Chris Paul earlier, and him being one of your calls, other than Coach K, when you decide to retire. Um, talk a little bit about why he is so important to you, or became so important to you through your playing career. We're different people, but we're like minded. Chris is a very intense competitor and I think he's he's probably not as abrasive now as he was with the Clippers but as a leader he could be abrasive and I never had an issue with that because I could see what his number one agenda was and that was to win a basketball game and everything that he did materialized out of that agenda I want to be great and I want to win. And so I saw the work he put in. I saw his commitment to his family. And he had had little Chris uh, prior to me getting there. And, and Cam at the time was was a toddler. But, you know, when Chelsea got pregnant, he was one of the guys that, you know, gave me life advice about being a dad. He was so great with Chelsea during her pregnancy. And so, like, it was just like this, this shared experience, but you know, a, a shared commitment to our values. And so we bonded on that. And Chris was a guy that, I mean, in the middle of a game, like I, I, he could motherfuck me and I could motherfuck him. And you know what? 
we were secure enough in our relationship to go grab dinner after the game. Yeah, we were secure enough at at the time. There was a TV show. I think it was was it Scandal. Scandal. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Scandal on uh, on ABC. And like uh-huh. I'd go, we'd go. Chelsea and I would go to Jada and Chris's house every Tuesday night or whatever it was that it aired, and we'd watch it together. And like, it didn't matter the day before we had yelled at each other. I didn't care because <laughs> I knew what he was about. And uh, I, I, I called him when I retired, and he was the only only teammate I, I called to just be like, "Hey, dude, I'm retiring. I'm announcing tomorrow." And the reason was I called him because I'm like, I'm like, dude, I, we're going through this, and I'm thinking about all the teammates I had, all the opportunities on great teams to to maybe win, and it never happened. And I know you haven't won either, and I just want you to know. If I could win a championship, if there was one teammate that I could win a championship with, that I wanted it for as bad as I want it for myself, it would be you. That's how I feel about him. That's how I feel about him. It's awesome. He and I have had the opportunity to cross paths a number of times. I have nothing but great things to say about him. You you hold another distinction. I mean, an amazing career. Clippers eventually then you you have a few runs there with the 76ers but you also become the first NBA player with a podcast and the only podcast that is allowed inside the bubble once we hit well once we hit the (laughs) once the bubble happened uh, because of uh, this little thing called the coronavirus that's been going on the last few years why Why did you start the podcast? What was your idea about it? Uh, initially, I will mention, called the J.J. Reddick Podcast. Now it has morphed into the old man and the three. I'm wondering if you're the old man or the three now that you've or retired. Maybe, now I've, that I'm retired, I don't know why it's the old man and the three. <laughs> I, we, should, we should change it. <laughs> why, why was that important to you? What was your idea about starting the podcast? I had no idea what I was getting into, okay. <laughs> if I'm being honest. <laughs> so so Adrian Wojnarowski was working at Yahoo at the time, and he he signed this deal with Yahoo, and he sort of got his own platform called The Vertical, and they were going to they were going to run uh, stuff online, you know, print online, and they were, they were going to do podcasts. And so initially it came to me, it was a very much a, a Players Tribune style format. Hey, can you write eight things during the season, uh, what it's like to be traded at the trade deadline. Uh, you're on a long road trip, what it's like to be on a long road trip, stuff like that. And I just, I was like, Woj, like I'm getting flashbacks to, uh, that class of, uh, New York history. We're like, I, <laughs> like, I don't think I'm going to be able to deliver on this one. So he came back to me a couple months later and was like, Hey, will you do a podcast? You, you can have your own podcast. And at the time it was a very novel thing. Uh, I think there was one other active athlete that had a podcast Okay, and there were just a few people in general uh, that had podcasts that were that were former athletes, and so I was the first active NBA player to have one. And at the time, it was such a novel thing because I was I was peeling back the curtain. You know, it was, you're you're a fly on the wall, and you're having a conversation with Kyle Korver about shooting mechanics. You're having a conversation with a Donald Foyle about finances when you're a pro athlete, and so people were like, "Oh, this is new and different." And along the way. I got really comfortable asking questions. and I was always curious, but I got comfortable asking questions. And I developed into a better interviewer. And my last year with The Ringer, so I did, did the Yahoo thing for a year. I did The Ringer for three years. My last year with The Ringer, 
I had a co-host named Tommy Alter, who's my business partner now in the Old Man of the Three and Three Four Two Productions. But we started discussing just ownership. Like we, why this is around the time the Ringer's selling to Spotify, Barstool Sports is selling to the Churning Group, and or uh, to to Penn Sports and the Churning Group is their investor. I'm sorry, but uh, so th- all this stuff is happening. We're like, why, why don't we just own it? Like, you know, we shopped it around. Uh, Bill made an offer. He wouldn't let us own it. And and so we we started our own thing. And it, it just so happened that our contract with the ringer ended on August 1st. And games in the bubble started August 1st. Like it okay. was just dumb luck. <laughs> so that we that we just so happened to be the one podcast amongst current players that was broadcasting out of the bubble. And on top of that, we got really lucky because for our show. Uh, you know, we can operate now. We, we've built up a, a decent audience where we can operate just the two of us, or we bring in our correspondents like Alex Caruso or Mikhail Bridges. And like week to week, it's fine. But, you know, primarily our, our show is guest driven. And it just so happened that we come out of the gates with Stacey Abrams, Damian Lillard, Joel Embiid, Jason Tatum, Dwayne Wade, Kevin Durant. And it's like, holy fuck, this is awesome. And so we just kind of hit, it was all timing. And, we worked and I work at it, but a lot of it was just dumb luck and, and timing. Right. And so we were able to get, you know, whether that was YouTube or audio, we were able to, cause we were starting from zero cause we restarted the podcast. We had no RSS feed because right. we gave it, to, we gave it to the ringer. We had no YouTube subscribers cause everything else was on the ringer. And so we started from zero and within two months we had built an audience and we've worked really hard over the last, you know, basically two years uh to to continue to build that audience and and i tell people all the time i'm like i i want to put out good content i want to put out great shows and great interviews and and i have a, a built-in sort of credibility w- with my peers and former teammates and players i compete, compete against but the only thing that matters to me is building the audience because everything else you could ever want from a show i mean you, you you know this from having worked in theater or television like if you have an audience good stuff will happen that's yeah. all that matters no, you're absolutely right. I have enjoyed your stuff for quite a long time now. By the way, he's been doing this since 2016. Yes. Uh, and as he mentioned, the first active player to have one. Congratulations to you. Thank you for talking to me. I, you know, I am such a, a Duke basketball fan, have always been a fan of yours. I I appreciate your your form uh, when you're out there shooting. I am – the challenge is live by the way. And I think that's what it needs to be. I could have a free throw shooting contest with the ninth best free throw shooter in the history of the NBA, but I think putting you in a coat and a tie and, and shoes and work pants 13 in a row. That's what that's, that's the challenge. If can you do it? I will accept that challenge. My only request, because I am a big fan of Eric Anders Lang and random golf club. Okay. My only request is whether that's on his channel or my channel, you and I have some sort. It could be a nine-hole match. It can be an eighteen-hole match. But we have some sort of golf match You're along dead. with the shooting contest. You're dead. You're dead in golf. <laughs> You're dead in golf. There's no question about that. I'll, I'll that I'll do that tomorrow. Are you kidding me? Whatever right. you want. I've heard about your game. I'm ready. Let's it's, go. Let's it's coming. It's go. it's coming along, Brian. It's coming along. It's coming right. along. Yeah, coming Eric. Along. Uh, Eric is a great guy. Always, always love those videos with him. Uh, this is going to be fun. 
JJ, thank you so much for talking to me today. Good luck in all of your future endeavors. And uh, yeah, let's do it. Challenge accepted. I love it. And double down on it. Brian, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. JJ, thank you so much for joining me. This was so great. And yes, I cannot wait for our free throw competition. Golf, you have no chance. It's done already before we even start. I can't believe it's Thursday already. Listeners, I'm going to see you very soon on Tuesday again for another episode of Off the Beat. I hope you're enjoying these sports interviews as much as I love doing them so be sure to let me know your thoughts on our instagram page at off the beat and i will see you on tuesday off the beat is hosted and executive produced by me brian baumgartner alongside our executive producer ling lee Our producers are Diego Tapia, Liz Hayes, Hannah Harris, and Emily Carr. Our talent producer is Ryan Papa Zachary, and our intern is Sammy Katz. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend Creed Bratton, and the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky. Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish-Sussman, every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. 
I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.